Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Health Mastery Show. Had a bit of an unplanned but needed break from the podcast and doing episodes and everything that goes into that, and planning them, etc. So back now over the next couple of weeks and months with some really good guests lined up. And today I had on Dr. Jeremy Linicky from the University of Mississippi, where he is an associate professor there. He is a PhD in exercise physiology and he is a former natural bodybuilder and former powerlifter as well. So really interesting topics that we got into today. Um, you can check them all out in the timestamps if you want to skip ahead, but I do advise that you listen to the whole podcast as normal. Uh, but we touch on topics such as hand grip strength and mortality rate. We touch, touch on the relationship between strength and hypertrophy. We talk about posing and if that actually helps with building muscle. And we also touch on a few other topics, such as blood flow restriction as well. So if you do like the podcast, please do subscribe. Um, if you're on Spotify, press the subscribe subscribe button. If you're on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, press the little plus. And if you're on YouTube, hit subscribe as well. So I do appreciate any feedback and comments and ratings and reviews. They always really help a lot with the podcast. And if you do listen to the podcast... Um, and you do want to learn more about Jeremy, you can check out his links in the show notes and you can check out some um, more information about myself too. So without further ado, let's get into this episode with Jeremy Linicky. So Jeremy, man, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It's great to have you on. Absolutely, Adam. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it, it's really great. I've been following your work for a very long time. I think I've been interested in, in natural bodybuilding. I think, you know, I kind of relate a little bit to some of your story a little bit when you mentioned that you started like uh, training in the same gym as Lane Norton. Uh, I didn't train in the same gym as him, but I started following him back in probably 2009 uh, when I first kind of Googled teen teenage bodybuilding. <laughs> I think Lane Norton had, had wrote some of the articles and then I came across some of your work. I think initially uh, a lot of the stuff you had done, at least in that time, um, was around kind of blood flow restriction and i know you've done a ton of, of research I, I don't know if there's any people have ever come across that have, have more publications or, or, co- or being a co-author than, than yourself uh maybe brad schoenfield is giving you a run for your money but i think i saw something like 400 papers or something like that um which is just um insane you're just pumping them out um but yeah for those who perhaps don't know who you are it would be great to um, for you if you do, do a brief introduction into your into your background etc yeah um so thanks for having me on uh i started i started athletically as a wrestler so i wrestled started wrestling when i was five uh that's where i stayed the most active all the way through high school but one of the things that i always lacked was overall strength because I, i didn't i didn't like lifting weights i didn't care about it i just really wanted to wrestle but uh when i did start lifting weights and did start getting stronger. I did start to obviously really kind of enjoy it. And my friend, uh, he was telling me, or he was kind of interested in bodybuilding. This was probably 2002, 2003. So we start, you know, going to the bookstores, like a lot of other people reading all these bodybuilding magazines, started to get really kind of interested into it. So that really set me on this path of lifting weights, bodybuilding, and wanting to study this. So that's what led me into exercise science when I was an undergraduate student. That's what led me to uh, University of Illinois, where I was doing some research on skeletal muscle. At that time, it was, I was doing animal research uh, in that laboratory. That's where I came across Lane. 
I have obviously we have been interacting for a long time on the bodybuilding.com message boards. So um, to to meet him and then become friends in person uh, was great. So went to Oklahoma, did my PhD, uh, focused a lot on blood flow restriction there. Then when I graduated in uh, 2014, I took a job at the University of Mississippi. Um, now I'm an associate professor here. So I started in wrestling, got interested in bodybuilding slash powerlifting. Uh, you know, my story is I've, I was always on my best day, mediocre. So there, even in wrestling, there's, there's days where I would beat people who I wasn't supposed to beat and I'd lose to people who I wasn't supposed to lose to. So that's the definition of, of being inconsistent and average. So academics, <laughs> a little bit better. So, but no, I've been at Ole Miss for, I guess this is my seventh or eighth year. So it's been good. Yeah, I, I kind of got into bodybuilding the same way. It's actually true playing basketball. And um, I actually spent a month in Oklahoma when I was 16. Um, what part? I can't even remember. I, I can't even remember the part now. Um, I'd have to. I'd have to think about. It. I didn't even think about it, but sure. I have to kind of go back and find because it, it was more than ten years ago. Um, but yeah, AAU basketball. Well, AAU bas- summer basketball because we don't play it here um, yeah. in summertime. In our, we we do kind of clubs like kind of your jo- you join a club and then you go to a school. I, I know it's a little bit different in the US. So yeah, it's it's crazy because I, I don't think I ever would have went to Oklahoma. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty nice in there and very, very warm. Um, but yeah, so s- some of the topics that we want to touch, in, touch on today, um, you, you'd sent me a paper before uh, before we, this conversation about a week or two ago um, that you had um, you published or, or maybe it was a rebuttal to a paper. Um, but it would be interesting to kind of understand uh, a little bit more. And, and that was specifically around the topic of like, does the strength um you know, lead to uh, to hypertrophy, or does does the strength that you gain, or sorry, does the the hypertrophy, or yeah, what the relationship essentially is between yeah. strength and hypertrophy? So I know that's a, a topic that I've probably talked a little bit on this podcast before, maybe with with Greg Knuckles or or some other person, kind of a long time ago. But it, it would be interesting to get your take on perhaps what what leads to strength, or what are the the kind of the factors that contribute to strength, and then what the relationship between hypertrophy and strength is then as well. Right. So, yeah, I think the <clears throat> the paper that you're talking about was uh, this. The paper is actually it just came out, but we wrote it um, at least the initial part of it, like March of 2020. So it's yeah. um, took it was a long process to write the article, send the article to them. So we basically had a contrasting perspective piece where we both write our positions, then we swap, then we write a response to that. So uh, the other authors were Professor Jonathan Falland um, and Thomas Balshaw. So basically, we, we were just trying to have some sort of discussion around what do we actually know about why people get stronger? And I, I think if you've ever taken any <clears throat> basic exercise science class <clears throat> or you read any strength textbook, the... the the description always is when you start lifting weights and you get stronger, that's first due to neural adaptations followed by large contributions from muscle hypertrophy. Um, and I think that's widely accepted. I think everybody agrees that you can get stronger without muscle growth. 
I think the disagreement is how much, if any, does muscle growth play in strength change? So that's kind of the, the point of discussion. And, you know, for a long time, I operated under the idea that, of course, muscle growth contributes to strength. Everybody knows this. So I, I came from that same paradigm kind of thinking system. It was through a lot of our own research on low load exercise with and without blood flow restriction, as well as just kind of seeing other things pop up in the literature that we started to really kind of rethink this. And we started to go, do we actually know this? Do we actually have good reason to believe that a change in muscle size contributes to a change in muscle strength? And I think some people would say, yeah, there is good reason to believe that that would contribute. Okay, do we have evidence? Do we have experimental evidence that a change in muscle size contributes to a change in muscle strength? Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of points that are arguing the exact opposite. So that led us to start to kind of think about this a little bit more and ask, why do we think this in the first place? What is the reason why we think that muscle growth contributes to strength? Where did this kind of come from and, and what studies are usually cited for its effect? And then once we see that, can those studies actually experimentally determine that? So I think that's where there's a lot of discussion back and forth of, uh, is, there, is there a reason to believe that, that muscle growth could contribute to strength? Of course. I, I, think that, <laughs> I think that there's reason to believe that. The next question is, do we have experimental evidence that shows that? And I think the answer, I think everybody would probably agree is no, we don't. So in my mind, and in our position, it has always been, maybe we should reconsider how much weight we're giving to this, given how little evidence there actually is for it. So that was kind of what the paper was. I would encourage you, um, I know a lot of people have emailed me requesting my article, but it's important to read both articles so you can see the actual contrasting perspective. So I, I think it's good to for this discussion to be had, at least so people can be aware that, hey, you know, maybe there's not as much evidence for this as I originally thought, because that's, you know, uh, I, I came at it from the opposite side. I came at it from, this is uh, obviously completely well known. And then I realized that maybe it's actually not well known uh, as we expected. Mm. So I, I think traditionally people would have would have mentioned, say, you know, like you said, skill, neurological adaptations, and then muscle size as the three major components. At least there's probably some other things like femur length and things like that, maybe pain threshold and stuff that perhaps can contribute to strength. But uh, well, if hold you on can for hold, hold on a second, just uh, not to cut you off, but that that's something that we have to be really cognizant of is that we have to be clear on what we're discussing. So we're discussing changes in strength. So we need to think about what are things that change in response to exercise that could influence a change in strength from exercise. For example, femur length is not changing in response to exercise. That might very well have an effect on strength, how strong you are, but that's not going to explain why people get stronger with exercise. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. What I was kind of getting at is, is those are the variables. And then if you kind of account for the confounders, um, you know, as people get more advanced, at least this is my kind of current thoughts, as people get more advanced, they may be able to tweak their skill a little bit, as you see in like the Olympics, where they 
will stay in the same weight class and add two kilos to their snatch yeah. or something. But um, but you do see typically that the biggest guys are the strongest guys as well, right? Or the you know the over a hundred and I don't know the Olympic weightlifting classes, but like the 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 big huge the guys uh, who are in like the hundred and twenty kilo plus class are stronger than the guys who are 60 kilos but you know that could be then due to femur length and stuff like that but um so so do you, if you think that you know if like my, my my thoughts were always that you know a a a powerlifter for example should focus or should do some focus um or blocks on specifically hypertrophy to try and you know get more strength it would that still be the, the your kind of reasonings i know that you don't have all the answers right now but know how much you think it actually would contribute to it i i think you know and what, what i always say during conversations like this when i'm talking to people who are who actually coach athletes and who are coaching different people to perform if you think as a coach that muscle growth contributes to strength and you believe that then obviously do what you think is going to actually help your athlete what what i'm saying is is that we don't have good evidence to believe that a change in muscle size does contribute. So if anything, if you if you still believe that it may contribute some, I think what it would tell us is maybe you could spend less time focusing on that. So maybe you have the position that, okay, there's not a lot of evidence there. Maybe that tells me that if it is playing a role, it's extremely small. So maybe I can maybe I can set up the training to reflect that and say, okay, we're gonna do some of this, but not as much as we used to, because it may not do as much as we thought it did, if that makes sense. Because a lot of that muscle growth works, it takes a little bit more time to recover because uh, it usually requires a lot more volume. So, you know, th those are things that you can do. I, I, I would never tell um, a coach who's, who's working with athletes who need to perform that, you know, don't ever do that, especially if they think it does something. All I'm saying is, mm. is that I've come to the conclusion that I don't think there's any evidence that it does. And if it if it actually does contribute, it's going to be extremely small. Otherwise, it'd be pretty easy to detect. Mm. So then uh, I guess personally for me, it's it's probably not a huge issue because if people that I coach either compete in natural bodybuilding or have concurrent goals of being stronger uh, and bigger, yeah. not just powerlifters or, or weight class. But this would have a big impact on those who are bound to a specific weight class, especially if you're at the the upper end right like i said in olympic weightlifting or powerlifting you don't want to be adding four kilos of muscle mass if it's going to bump you into the upper class and then there's guys you're bigger but but then what what I don't, I don't know if you've found the answer or that you just have found that you don't know the answer and um, which of course is always is always going to be the way in science and um, but what would you think then contributes to those bigger athletes being stronger and um, if it's not actually just a a larger you know amount of contract contractile muscle tissue yeah. is it things perhaps just you know bone bone structure or something like that yeah i think that it, it, we have to to consider a couple things one uh what happens during development in other words people who are generally of massive size were of massive size for a long time Right. So not to say that they don't gain muscle size and strength from training. That certainly is possible. But people who are generally bigger tend to be bigger, bigger kids, bigger adults. Right. Do you, do you agree? Yeah. 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 So I, I think that we have to separate what might happen from development 
right? So when you're growing and you're adding a lot of muscle size, adding a lot of a lot of everything, that might be completely different than what explains why people get stronger when lifting weights. So that's what we're trying to explain. So it's very possible that if you add a tremendous amount of muscle mass during development and then you're an adult and you're bigger, there's no question that you're stronger. I, I think everybody is in agreement with that. Even if you've never lifted weights in your life, we, we see these relationships between muscle size and strength in people who have never lifted weights. In other words, those who are bigger tend to be stronger. Those who are smaller tend to be weaker. But that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in when people start exercising. When adults start exercising and they get stronger, why is that? So two of the factors that are commonly discussed, kind of what we talked about early, was the neural adaptation and then muscle growth. So does this mean that if I'm questioning that if, if muscle growth may not be a mechanism, does that mean it's all neural? Perhaps. It could also mean that there are local changes at the fiber that occur independent of a change uh, in muscle size. Maybe there's a change in the myosin motor itself. Uh, maybe there's change in calcium kinetics. I, I don't know. Uh, but one of the things that we are starting to know more and more about is, well, the muscle growth thing does not line up with the changes in strength. Because there's many times, not only our lab, but lots of labs that see these changes in muscle growth, even at the fiber level, where the changes in strength are, are the, the growth is the same, but the strength is completely different. And that doesn't, that in and of itself doesn't rule growth out as a mechanism, but it's another mm. kind of line of evidence that suggests, well, maybe there's, uh, maybe it's not contributing, or maybe it's not contributing to the degree that we, we, we expect. So... Yeah, you, you could have some sort of change in the brain, the spinal cord, the, the motor neuron itself, the local level. I, I'm not sure. Um, it could be a variety of those. Um, I think our position is we came at it from the idea that muscle growth was part of that, but every time we investigate it, we don't find any evidence of that. So that's where we're kind of going, well, maybe we should just remove it from the conversation, or at least talk about it a, a, a lot less. Yeah, I, I guess the, the best way probably to detect it would be to have somebody add some muscle size, um, you know, doing some sort of training program and then measure it isokinetic force or something like that. So skill is completely removed. I, I don't know. Um, that, that's what I would think, right? To try and minimize any kind of confounders as much as possible. So you just purely look at force, right? Sometimes, uh, but sometimes people want to know, like, you know, for example, if an athlete is competing in powerlifting, they want to know, what do I need to do to increase my strength in this lift? So what contributes to that? So I, I think it's still uh, of use to look at it in the movement of which you're exercising, even though there is that skill component, because mm. one of the things that, you know, we have some data on this and we've recently conducted a, a, a bigger analysis that's not published yet, but one of the things that you're describing is kind of a, a transfer of strength to a non-specific test. So when we looked at that relative to a non-exercise control, which is extremely important in order to quantify just random noise, so how much of that change in isokinetic strength exceeds random error, random noise? 
Um, there does appear to be an, an effect of, of resistance training on non on the transfer to non-specific strength, but it's extremely small. And the 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 amount of people that you need in a study to to quantify that is extremely large, much larger than you would need to detect a change in the the movement of which you're training. So for a long mm. time, I, I was kind of under the idea. I'm like because we would do studies with 50 people in a group and not see any change in isokinetic strength in response to isotonic training. But the reason why we didn't see it is because 50 people per group is probably not large enough to detect that small of a difference. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that would remove the skill component, no question. Uh, but it might also remove the, the question that you're interested in, which is, when I want to get stronger in this lift for this for this performance or this athlete, how do I? What do I need to do? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, in like in a clinical setting, would be like or then kind of in terms of having a hypothesis for clinical settings would be you know if 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 strength is not necessarily influenced that much by muscle size, then it may not be a good idea for older population to focus on strength if they're trying to increase muscle size um you know in terms of you know sarcopenia and all of these things i, I know that they're not trying to get absolutely massive and any kind of resistance training will, will be helpful so i'm not sure if that's probably too nuanced or you know just completely irrelevant no i think it's interesting because you know that that's a, a little bit of a different side of the coin um because you're actually losing from baseline, yeah, yeah. so we're, we're, whereas we're talking about a, uh, an increase, but you know one yeah. of the things that is interesting though is that there is a disconnect with aging. In other words, the loss of function seems to be m much greater than what could be explained by a drop in muscle size. So when we talk about that though, when we talk about start losing from our you know our, our natural baseline where we are just walking around independent of exercise. This might be just be my bias being a muscle person. It's just hard. It's hard for me to believe that, that you know you could lose a lot of muscle mass from your normal baseline and have no effect at all on, on normal function. So I, I think that there is a lot of reason to try and maintain that muscle mass as you age, because at some point you're going to lose enough of it where it probably would matter, even if it is dis disconnected. Um, but yeah, I think that that's an interesting discussion that's occurring in aging, and they call that dynapenia, you know, the loss of. Bro, I've never heard of the term. Yeah, loss of. Yeah. And, and to be fair, they've changed the definition of sarcopenia, because it used to be a loss of muscle mass. Now it's a loss of muscle mass and function, because oh, right. uh, function's the key component there. But yeah. Mm, yeah, and I guess there's just some sort of neurological de degradation going on as well that probably pay, plays yeah. a some sort of role in the function. Um, but then just to kind of jump back into the topic of the, more specifically in terms of people who want to get, you know, actually bigger and stronger, not for health purposes, but the, do you think that scales then even with say people who use like super physiological doses of testosterone or you know, any kind of other steroids or anabolics? Because I, again, this could be just correlated or it could be just that a small effect uh, is looks quite large when you have a, a ton of muscle. But you, when you see a lot of top top um, professional bodybuilders, they are a lot of them are very strong. Now, again, granted, they they could have been pretty big when they were younger naturally as well. So maybe that just 
is the reason? Yeah, that's a good question. I I, I don't know, um, but I will. I, I can say a couple of things about that. I I think that you know there's going to be plenty of bodybuilders who are strong because they're lifting weights as well, right? Um, but I, I definitely am interested in the question because is, does, does there come a point where you're able to pump so much in that, you know, you can get the muscle big enough to where it can contribute? Um, possibly, but I, I think we'd have to make the assumption that the injecting steroids doesn't do anything else. So all it does is increase muscle size. But I think that mm. um, there's some discussion that it can affect the nervous system. Uh, I think they have... They talked about that. There was a recent position stand in MSSC talking about that, um, not just the nervous system, but that was one of the components that they said is that increasing or injecting anabolic steroids can perhaps influence the nervous system, which we also know could contribute to strength. So it, it would still be hard to separate that. What, what I can say is when you look at the, the steroid literature, um, I actually went into it thinking – what, what you were saying, which is um, every time we inject drugs into some, some of these uh, individuals, they're going to be bigger, they're going to be stronger. Uh, but that's, that's not what we found. We found that sometimes you see an increase in muscle size, no change in function. Sometimes you see an increase in both. Sometimes you see an increase in function, no change in size. Um, however, those were clinical populations. So what happens when you do it and people who are healthy and just getting it in the gym? That's a good question. Mm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's oh, yeah. how that And you're taking uh, 1.5 grams and not 125 milligrams a week. You yeah. know? Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting, um, an interesting topic because you, you do see guys who are just, you know, quite large. And But, but, also, but obviously there's there, there has to be some benefit other than just muscle size because the sprinters in the olympics wouldn't be using it because you know they, they're getting faster or something so i don't really know much about it, but obviously it has some impact on performance yeah you know they're called performance enhancing drugs not just physique enhancing drugs so um yeah it's, it's interesting but on the topic of kind of we were talking a little bit about clinical um the clinical side of things there um you you'd done a bit of work on Strength, uh, sorry, grip strength and mortality rates. Now, I've, I've heard this before being kind of just, you know, people have said it to me in the past, um, especially when I was training, in the, when I was a personal trainer a couple of years ago in a gym, it was like almost like a selling point to like older people. It's like, but then I've actually seen people physically try and prescribe grip strength exercise specifically because that's the, the measure that you use. Um, <coughs> But is it that grip strength specifically is related to it, or is that just the indicator or, or the the way that you measure actual just strength or how strength is expressed? And, and is that related to strength or is that related to muscle mass? Yeah, and I think the other question is: Is it related to resistance training behavior, uh, which is uh, the angle that we kind of looked at that? So yeah, I I think I think that. Uh, Hand grip exercise, so just, I'll deal with that first. So hand grip exercise, is there a reason to do it to decrease uh, your mortality rate by getting stronger? I, I don't think so. Um, there could be reasons to do isometric hand grip exercise, though, at low force, because there is some evidence that it actually does reduce your blood pressure, even in normal intensive individuals. 
So that was a surprise to me, to be honest. But there, there are some pretty good uh, studies demonstrating that. Um, would, but, would that be would, would that be uh, confounded by someone doing uh, resistance training or with could, these kind of non-training yeah. populations? Yeah, that's that. That's tough because a lot of these studies, all they're doing is isometric hand grip. So if you're doing heavy <laughs> squats, does that does that yeah, yeah, yeah. eliminate that? I'm not sure. Um, but a lot of the stuff that gets shared is you'll see a study come out where they're looking at a population level. So what's a good way to, to test strength on a population? Here, squeeze this. So we get some idea of your overall strength level. Um, and what we what a, what a lot of times you'll find is is that the the, the stronger you are, uh, the less likely you are to die prematurely. Now, yep. what it, if you if you dig into those papers, what you what you usually find is is that just don't be in don't, just don't be in the weakest quartile. As long as you're not in the bottom, you're probably going to be fine. But there is some evidence that says yes, the stronger your the, the higher your grip strength, the 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 better health that you have. So. What, what that leads to is that many people will look at that and go, okay, see, once again, some positive effects of resistance exercise. The, and and I, again, just to be clear, I, I do think that performing exercise is useful. But when we look at those studies on grip strength, most of those people probably aren't lifting weights. They probably aren't doing anything. We, we've analyzed this before, not with the hand grip, but with uh, isokinetic dynamometry of the lower body and we found again stronger you are the less likely you are to have mortality prematurely however most of the people who were the strongest weren't participating in exercise so it tells you that it's not necessarily the behavior that's relying to this there could be something just different about those people and it could be a variety of things right there's a there's a lot of limitations when you're looking at a population level with a single metric it could be you're just capturing people with subclinical disease already, um, mm. but it could also it could also tell you about differences during development. That's kind of the angle that we hypothesize that hey, maybe this tells us that um, we need to spend a lot of time early in life to try and develop as much as possible because once we get to being an adult, you know that overall strength change doesn't doesn't change very much. Because if I do whole body resistance training, my grip strength, as it's measured in these studies, doesn't really change very much, at least in the studies. So it tells me that maybe it's kind of an overall proxy uh, of, of, of what you're trying to maintain as you go through adulthood. But yeah, there, there, is, there are those studies, but I, don't, I think they tell us less about the behavior and more about there's just differences between people. Mm. So, so what you're saying there is, can, can we influence, or, or or we would have the biggest influence on our strength if we, you know, in our by by proactively doing something in our younger years? Is that what you're saying, or, or is yeah. this something that's no. more nature rather than nurture? Yeah, again, this is just an idea, and it could be completely wrong. But I, I think that one of the things that you said is that you know, strength maybe it's related to. Uh, you know, overall health is related to muscle mass. So where can we actually affect that change? Because there's some data that suggests that if you're a weak child, you become a weak adult. So, mm. you know, maybe we can, gotcha. maybe we can influence these children when things are actually able to change. Meaning that 
if you think about how much a, a child grows from when they're five to when you're, let's say, 20 years old, that's going to be way more than anything you ever change from that point on. So I'm, I'm, I'm with it that early in life, we could, we could probably influence a lot of things that might influence overall health, overall strength, overall everything. Uh, because I think yeah. that a lot of them use strength as kind of a proxy for health, meaning that if you live up in a, you grow up in a poor environment with poor nutrition, right? That strength might reflect kind of that upbringing, um, because you, you didn't have maybe what you needed to, to grow to your maximum. And now that's going to influence what you're able to do as an adult. So that, that's an idea. And if people think that that doesn't make sense or they don't agree, that's com- doesn't hurt my feelings. Just an idea. <laughs> well, it probably has some some sense to it because, you know, in, in in poor regions of the world, especially hundreds of years ago, the people weren't as tall, you know, because they're, they had poor nutrition. It wasn't because they had worse genetics or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting. I was reading a paper, in, I think it was in Cell recently, about um, – fat cells and adipocytes and that you you can increase the the amount in your childhood and then you could that kind of hangs around but they don't increase in adulthood they just atrophy or hypertrophy so it's it's pretty interesting that how how much your that a lot of the stuff is influenced by you know during your your kind of pre-pbs and or pbs in the years um on, on the topic of then just the final one on the hand grip. So when you're saying the, the research, is, is that more observational on saying that weaker adults, they have a higher mortality rate, but not, but doesn't necessarily say that UK, if you're ever weaker, you should then try and get a higher hand grip. And that will be, mean that you live longer. Or is it just pointing out that if you're weaker, you're going to, you're going to probably die earlier rather than saying, okay, that means you have to do this then to try yeah. to get a stronger grip. Yeah. I, I think that, <laughs> It, it, I, I think, I think what it tells you is that it's better to uh, be born strength, uh, born strong, than to become strong when you're an adult. At least as it's related to that, uh, or to be developed strong when you're a child, than to become strong mm. with hand grip as an adult. Gotcha. Now that does not mean that there's no utility in resistance exercise. So one of the things that there actually is good evidence for with respect to resistance training um, is you have, for whatever reason, uh, you, you appear to have a reduced injury risk when you're an athlete. And that, that's also seen in older adults. So you see it in these young, you know, high level athletes, but we see the same thing when these elderly participants complete in randomized control trials, they fall less, they get hurt less, and that might help you stay functional for a longer period of time. So I don't think that's, I don't think that means that I don't think that's related to getting as strong as possible. I think that's the in response to just performing the behavior. Uh, but yes. that's a little bit different than trying to to reduce your mortality by doing hand grip exercise. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. Well, I, I think with uh, strength, uh, sorry, with muscle size as well. And um, if you if you I think it's two standard deviations below normal then that's considered sarcopenia so you know the, the more muscle mass you have and you can influence that as an adult um otherwise it would be doing bodybuilding um but yeah that's so i think it's that's an important point and um, so to, to jump into then something related to more so to bodybuilding which is uh, something that I, I i think is 
I might have read this paper a long time ago. And it was I may have been called out. I may be wrong. In Alan Aragon's research review, like many years ago, um, but it was uh, some of the research that you had looked at in terms of uh, contracting muscles with an uh, um, with no external force, essentially with no weights. And I, I don't want to make two plus two equals five. But then, you know, you've always heard uh, from Flex Magazine or Muscular Development Magazine or any of these magazines when I was growing up, you know, posing in front of the mirrors. And I think, you know, probably in Pumping Iron, they even mentioned, you know, hours of posing leads to, like, better peaks. And I actually even heard many years ago that that's one of the reasons that people have, like, big arms because they flex their arms a lot and they don't flex their calves, probably because they don't train their calves. But, yeah. <laughs> but um yeah, so so it would be interesting to kind of hear a little bit about that research and then kind of, if, if anything, what I said there would make any sense or I'm completely kind of making huge jumps. Yeah, I think it's an interesting idea. That was a paper <clears throat> by my former student, Brittany Counts. Um, that was her master's thesis. Uh, it's, it's kind of a more of a proof of concept idea because one of the things, it, it started with, Again, kind of the low load literature suggesting that, man, the absolute load doesn't appear to be driving a lot of the muscle growth. It, it, you know, the strength, again, being completely different, but muscle growth, very similar to that of high load exercise. Um, and it was the same time where a lot of the work was coming out saying that not only that, the circulating hormones don't seem to be playing a role. Uh, an increase in that with an increase in muscle size because um, it muscle growth from exercise is a very local response, meaning that if I train my right arm, my right arm will get bigger, but my left arm may get stronger, but not bigger. So again, highlighting that this appears to be a very local response, uh, load-induced growth. So we were just kind of thinking and saying, if that's true, then if we were to take someone and just have them flex as hard as they can through a full range of motion. Now that's not going to be, I mean, that's a high force contraction, but there's no external load. If we were to do this repeatedly, would we able, would we be able to stimulate growth? And if, if it's true that it's local, it's related to tension and we do enough of those, it should produce growth. Uh, so that was kind of what we were thinking. Uh, and originally, I don't even remember what we were originally going to compare it to, but I was like, we need to compare this to high load exercise. Otherwise, I don't, I'm not sure I'm going to to, to believe this. I, I want to see how it compares against, you know, something we believe that most people believe is a maximal stimulus. And what we found is, is that strength was obviously different, and that's going to be a specificity component there. But muscle growth was, was very similar. Again, highlighting that, you know, Growth is a local response, and it seems to be in response to a sufficient amount of, uh, you know, of, of tension. So what does that have to do with bodybuilding? Does that mean if you add posing at the end of your bicep curl workout that that's going to somehow augment it? That I, I don't know because your muscle can only respond so much in a given training session. But if it's if it's, if it's own thing and you're, and you're flexing all the time, I mean – it's conceivable that it could do something. I mean, we, we do have evidence that, that, as you said, that doing this does produce growth. Uh, and, very, you know, similar to that of pilot exercise, but the combination of them together, I, I think there's going to come a point where you can only do so much within a given a short period of time. But 
if you have if you have mm. days of just posing, it, it might serve as a stimulus for sure. Mm. And, and yeah, I, I did read some recent research, and I can't even remember if it was strength or, or cross sectional muscle size. Um, but even just imagining yourself uh, doing the exercise, um, or yeah, it was strength. The, the subject lost less strength when they actually imagine themselves doing the exercise. So I do think uh, you know there's. There's probably a lot more going on than what we think in terms of just moving moving a bit of weight. Yeah. Um. So you know, the the bros probably are probably on point to you know when they were saying like you know imagine imagine how you want to look or you know posing will uh, you know m- maybe not as much as they as they as they think but definitely maybe onto something. It, it is um, interesting though, right? Because anytime you do posing practice, it, assuming that you're yeah, yeah, you know, you're doing it more than just you know a, a double bicep in the mirror. It's exhausting. So it, yeah, yeah, it, it is conceivable that that you know, but even before these studies, that that might have done something for sure. Mm. Yeah, because I remember the first time because uh, I competed for a good few years now, but I'd always done uh, like fitness or like these kind of uh, categories, and then I started doing natural bodybuilding and. A friend of mine started they teach me how to properly pose right so um i remember i'd never felt such pain in my glutes yeah uh, because you know you're standing there contracting your glutes uh and hamstrings for like 30 40 seconds uh, it's not the same as in a hip thrust you know so right um yeah it's definitely interesting and even clients that i work with now it's like uh it's super hard to hold it you know just and a lot and, of times feel like you're yeah and a lot of times it shows you can see who's been practicing and who hasn't been practicing yeah uh, by what they look like on stimulus yeah. as well. Oh, hundred percent. I, I remember the last show that I, I did, or the the first show that I did in twenty nineteen. Um, it was over in, in the U.S. section, California. There was a guy who should have won um, his pro card, but he, he was huge. He was like ninety kilos um, and stage condition, yeah. which is what I don't know, two two hundred pounds yeah. maybe or maybe one ninety five or something. Yeah, he he just could not pose. He was just uh, he he couldn't hold. It. He didn't have the stamina, you know. Like he could pose probably for Instagram, but like yeah, uh, he <laughs> right. just could not hold it. So so he, he lost it. Yeah, but it's a uh, it's definitely interesting. Um, final topic I want, I want to touch on. And I know you've you've talked a lot about this. And you've done a lot of research. Is is blood flow restriction training a little bit? So um, it would be great if you could actually explain exactly what that what that is. Um, like obviously we're kind of occluding the blood, but exactly what what's happening. Um. You know, in terms of are we stopping all blood flow? Are we, are we, you know, completely cutting off blood flow? And then does that have any kind of practical applications into people who want to get bigger or stronger? I know there's a lot of research coming out of that. And I know you kind of, I don't know if you spearheaded it, but you definitely done a ton of it. Um, if you search blood flow restriction uh, training in PubMed, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of papers with your, with your name on it. Yeah, well... Yeah, we blood flow restriction, and again with, with with the papers and research, you know that's a that's a always a team effort. So um, yeah, yeah. I, I've been fortunate to be part of some great groups for a long time. Um, but blood flow restriction, as you said, it's it's essentially applying a, a cuff or a wrap at the most proximal portion of your limb. Uh, we apply it to the top of the arm, so covering the bicep or the top of the leg. And what we're doing is we're inflating it to a pressure that partially restricts blood flow in and largely includes it out, especially during the rest. So blood flow is coming in. It's just reduced. And I think the, the important point to remember is 
Now, this is a very this is very acute. So we're not restricting blood flow for hours. We're restricting blood flow for minutes. So if we were to do this for a couple days, yes, that would probably be quite dangerous. But we're restricting it for minutes. So acute versus kind of chronic uh, stimulus there. When that's done, when we combine blood flow restriction with low load resistance exercise, so 20, 30% of your maximum, we are able to see changes in muscle size comparable to that of high load exercise um, and, comparable, and, and changes in strength, although those are usually uh, a lot less. But we still do see changes in strength and, and other markers of, of muscle function. Mm. So I know that in the, I think it was a meta-analysis that, that Brad Schoenfeld had done with the, kind of looking at different loads, and the, I think it was 30% that if you went any lower than 30%, like 20%, you started to not see the same hyper, hypertrophy response um, as, as kind of higher loads below 85%, but uh, kind of, sorry, above 85%. But um, with, with blood flow restriction training, can you get even lighter than that, or is it still, is it still around the same? We've, there's, there's several studies looking at 20% compared to high load exercise, suggesting that the growth is pretty similar. Um, but it's a good point. And, and I, I think, you know, Brad's work um, and a lot of other people's work as well suggest that if you just take a low load, you know, around 30% and do as many repetitions as you can, that will produce growth very similar to that of blood flow restriction. We did that study um over a decade ago as well comparing blood flow mm. just to low loads the difference is that the, the the amount of work that you need is a lot less um but to your point yeah there probably does come a, there there is probably some percentage of one rm that it might help to have some blood flow restriction in order to get a stimulus so we've looked at this as low as 15 percent and did a tremendous amount of repetitions I, I think that we did see some comparable growth to that of high load exercise, even with normal uh, free flow, 15%. But in the upper body, the growth was a little bit lower. So I think 15% is, is too low. Uh, but 20%, yeah, I think adding that with blood flow restriction uh, is going to produce uh, growth similar to that of high load exercise. Now, the other component of that is there, there may be some benefit to adding blood flow restriction to other activities. So, for example, there's some data, not a lot, but there's some, and there should be great caution with this first phase where we apply blood flow restriction in the absence of exercise. So if someone's just had surgery and they can't do anything, there's some, not a lot, some that suggests that inflating and deflating a cuff can slow down how much muscle mass that you lose. So that's the first phase. The second phase, and when we combine slow walking with blood flow restriction, in some populations that can produce growth. Now, in populations such as yourself, I cannot imagine that walking slowly at 1.8 miles per hour on a treadmill is going to produce growth. I, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think people who can do exercise are going to see the greatest benefit with resistance exercise if they want to use blood flow restriction. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think like what's going on at a at a molecular level or, or mechanistically to, to cause that. I think it may be now that Luke Van Loon's lab in Maastricht, or Ma I cannot have pronounced it, but yeah. the Netherlands, um, 
about kind of uh, blood flow and muscle protein synthesis that an increased blood flow actually increases muscle protein synthesis. I don't know if that is probably very acute and, and very transient, but I don't know if that's perhaps one of the things that's that's going on. Um, you know, what what is it that allows you to actually lift less weight? And obviously, I've done blood flow restriction. You, your arm swells up, the blood is pooling there. Yeah. Um, it's pretty painful. You reach failure. You reach failure earlier, um, but what's going on there that actually leads to a similar response? Yeah, it could be, and, and kind of our one of our working ideas is that you produce these metabolites that get trapped, and those metabolites originally we thought that even just the metabolites themselves, just them being there, might start some of these signaling cascades, <clears throat> and might in and of themselves be anabolic. Uh, I, I don't. Think there's a lot of good evidence to believe that's true so we've started yeah. to really say what 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 it might be is, is those metabolites are being trapped and it's basically fatiguing cross bridges so you're having to recruit a lot more muscle mass in order to lift the same load um, much more quickly than you would if you were just doing it without blood flow restriction so it's it's that idea that might explain why it's so fatiguing so quickly and why we're able to see this, mm. this, this growth. Because once you look at the molecular mechanism, like the signaling pathways, it appears to be very similar to that of high load exercise. So uh, it uses what, what seemingly the same pathway, the mTORC1 pathway. It has similar satellite cell responses, has similar phosphorylation responses. The gene expression response when compared head to head is basically the, appears to me to be the same, both before and after training. So what that tells me is, is that the mechanism behind how those motor units are activated is probably quite different, the strategy involved, because to lift a heavy weight, that's going to require a much different strategy initially than to lift a very lightweight. But once the fiber itself is activated, I think the mechanisms are very similar between those two, at, at least with respect mm. to growth. So I assume if if the blood is being, if you're cutting off oxygen or sufficient oxygen supply, it's obviously becoming extremely anaerobic, right? So I assume some of the some of the meta metabolite would be lactate, um, and there may be I I don't know what your thoughts are, but there may be some link between lactate and anabolism. Um, but if you were to measure lactate levels, I, I know it's usually done like in the ear, uh, but if you were to measure it specifically in that limb, like in the finger. Would it be? Would would you see quite high lactate levels compared to normal, higher than compared to normal resistance training? Uh, sometimes yes. I, I think that um, if you're doing lower body exercise and you're measuring in the finger, you're not going to see anything until you re, until you yeah. deflate the cuff because we have a, yeah, a lot yeah. of venous restriction. But yeah, the the lactate is generally uh, observed to be a little bit higher than. The same exercise without it unless you're going to failure uh, but when it's repetition match it's generally going to be higher but you have inorganic phosphate you have a lot of other metabolites that can that are thought to be fatiguing so yeah it could be a lot of different mm -hmm. things uh, but it, that's kind of the the idea that that for trying to explain why we're able to activate all of these different fibers that um, normally aren't active when you're lifting such a light weight and have you looked at any anything to do with muscle damage or even separate to that, you know, kind of recovery time or delayed onset muscle soreness in 
uh, occlusion training and how that compares to uh, just you know regular training? Yeah, when we compare it to the same exercise, so re so work matched, it does appear to induce a little bit more soreness, uh, but all of the other markers of muscle damage are not changed to or are not all that different. So I, I have a hard time knowing is that, is that muscle damage when you have DOMS and nothing and, and nothing else that's really differentially changed mm -hmm. because you will be very sore. I, I, that I can say with confidence, but is that in and of itself muscle damage? Because when they take the muscle fiber and they look at it, there it's a stressed fiber, but it's not a damaged fiber. There's no mild fiber disruption, uh, which that's a direct kind of marker of muscle damage. So I, I don't know if if muscle damage is occurring per se, but soreness is certainly occurring. But again, we see that with you know, normal exercise as well. Um, mm. But it, it does appear that if there is any amount that it does undergo the same repeat about effect that you see with normal exercise. So the next time you do it, it'll be lessened. Um, and then mm. you do it repeatedly, then, you know, just like normal exercise, you're not going to feel quite as sore or mm. sore at all. Yeah. I've been using it recently myself uh, because I've just been getting some sort of tendonitis in my elbow from just some sort of overhead tricep stuff so it's been super helpful for that and especially when i was prepping um when my just joints got sore it was just it was great but do you see any utility in using any kind of blood flow restricted training in another otherwise healthy person that's not recovered from an injury or, or or can train normally in terms of trying to get any additional benefit i know i heard you on another podcast saying um you know, the people who are like bodybuilders, they try to do anything. They'll take any supplement under the sun to try and get an extra half percent. So do you think there's any benefit to doing something like that? Yeah. So um, quick question before that. When you do the tendonitis, when you have the, the tendonitis, yeah. is that pain in your elbow, right? Or, yeah, yeah. So when you do the exercise with the blood flow restriction, like during it, does it does it go away? Yeah. Or do you still feel um, it? I just don't feel it as much because I have to go lighter. So that's going to be one of the reasons. That's part but of I found that, yeah, if I go lighter, though, with just a normal weight, I it actually, I have to do so many reps that it still aggravates it. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah of course, I could do <laughs> a lighter load. And I know that, quote, unquote, I'll get the same hypertrophic response. But I'm doing so many reps that it still aggravates it with the blood flow restricted training still getting you know 15 reps but because i got that cuff i'm getting to failure with a much lighter load and it, you know it gets super large yeah. pump but and, and and maybe it's something to do with the blood as well that there's more blood there um and that makes it less sore and you know i could be just yeah. you know speaking out my backside but you know yeah, I, I, I was know. just curious i hear i hear that sometimes and you know how anecdotes can be but I, i'm just always kind of curious yeah. but yeah but for a normal person um I think that it's a tool that they can use if, if they if they want to. And I can totally relate to the bodybuilder wanting to do anything because back in high school, it's like you go to GNC, the sports supplement store on the weekend. Yeah. It's like the discount rack, whatever's on discount, you know, yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm going to take it all. Um, but, yeah, I think that – I think what I would say is if you're a healthy uh, bodybuilder or a healthy person in the gym – um, do you 
need it? Do you have to do blood flow restriction to see quote unquote optimal adaptation? No. Uh, could you use it to, to make things more interesting from time to time to keep yourself motivated? Yes. Uh, could you use it to, um, if there's a time where you're supposed to train heavy and mentally you don't have it that day and it might be safer for you to train at a lower load? Yes, that's another one. Or if you're injured, then it's a, it's a great tool to use. Um, so mm. there's lots of people who use it as um, just to try and, and spice it up, keep it a little bit interesting. Um, but if your goal is to also increase strength as much as possible, then you're going to need to also make sure that you are lifting at least part of the time heavy. Um, otherwise, the strength that you get is going to be m much reduced. The muscle growth will be similar, but the strength will be less. So, yeah, I think it's a tool. They don't have to use it, but if, it, if it's, it, I mean, it, it would be produce similar growth as any other thing that they would do, um, but usually with a, a lot less mental and mechanical stress. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've been using it with some clients who are doing some uh, uh, kind of weak point training. We're doing a ton of volume on, like, say, ex, you know, extremities, where just one or two days because we're just doing a lot of volume so that if there's any case that it would help with preserve kind of joint integrity or anything, you yeah. know, this is going to be the time, but it, it could be just a, you know, just throwing a dart and hoping that, um, at least, no, it's not going to be any worse. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, but it's, it's been great to, to chat to you, Jeremy, where can people find uh, more about you and your work? And, and do you have anything kind of in the pipeline that you can share? This is going to be interesting. Yeah, we've been, <laughs> we've, we started, a couple studies. One of them has just now recently been shut down for the second time um, due to COVID. But yeah, we have uh, a couple. Uh, one of them is related to kind of the crossover effect. So training one limb, what influence on strength is that how on the other? But a part of that study is also trying to get at um, some potential explanations for why people get stronger that are independent of growth. So, uh, and maybe potentially independent of the nervous system. So, um, I'm not sure what we'll find if anything, if, if, but, uh, that's one of the things that we've been working on. So we're actually going, I'm going in in about an hour to, uh, we have pre-testing today. So, um, that's going to be Zach Bell's dissertation work, uh, Yujiro Yamada. He came out with the review paper recently on cognition and blood flow restriction. So one of the, the studies that we've been trying to work on for two years now um, is trying to use blood flow restriction, some form of blood flow restriction with exercise to increase lactate with the idea that could, can we improve some of this executive function. Um, so that's what we're working on as well. And we have a, the last one that we're doing right now is looking at uh, blood flow restriction and changing pain thresholds. Um, following different types of exercise with and without blood flow restriction and why that might be occurring. So working on several things. Again, I have a, um, a tremendous amount of students and I've been lucky and fortunate to work with great people when I was a student and then have tremendous students. So uh, it's the only way you have anything interesting to talk about is to get good students. So I've been, again, fortunate and, and very happy. Uh, but yeah, we're staying busy and hopefully we have uh, we can kind of keep it going with this COVID thing. Awesome. Great to have you on, man. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Adam.